This podcast contains detailed plot spoilers, adult language, and mature themes. Listener discretion is advised. Try not, do, or do not. There is no try. Welcome to a podcast of Rare Antiquities, episode 33. Today we will review Yoda's secret pet project, a 1991 film named What About Bob, starring Bill Murray and Richard Dreyfuss. I am your host, Harry. And I am your co-host, Jeff. Jeff, welcome back. It's been, just in our pre-talk here, it's been a couple months since we've done this thing. Hope you've made it through okay. I've been itching to get back into the groove. It has it has been way too long since we've done the show, so I'm glad to be back, man. It's great. Yeah, been busy, both of us, I guess, just haven't been able to line this up. I thought we were supposed to crank these out every week or every two weeks, but I guess that hasn't happened, so... Yeah, no, uh, that's all right. I mean, we saved the good ones, and we need a few weeks to get up to, like, the excellent classic episodes, as tonight's going to be. <laughs> all right, let's get into What About Bob. Just, I don't think we need to go over Murray and Dreyfus's career, because, you know, they They've had a lot of success and have been a variety of projects and, and a variety of genres. But just your thoughts on these actors. What are your favorite movies, your memories with these guys? What are their strengths, weaknesses? And what type of genre do you think that they best succeed in? Just from the hmm. stuff that you've seen. I'll tackle the man Bill Murray first. Obviously known for his comedic work. As far as his strengths go, what I've always really loved about Bill Murray is his his ability to be funny without really like telling jokes or being overly silly or goofy. Although you know he has movies where he does that, but he has a, a way about him. You know he he's good at playing a character who's very sarcastic, but also very I want to say down to earth, a little bit more subdued. And when he gets a character like that, it always works great. I mean I think his best role is in. Ghostbusters as Peter Bankman and that you know every time I see Bill Murray I see that movie where he's in extreme situations and it's like that and it's like he knows that everything is just crazy and he just goes with it you know uh, cracks a couple of sarcastic jokes here and there and it's great he provides a great entry point for the audience to a movie because he's so relatable on screen he's quite the character behind the scenes as I've heard and also he can act he's not a spectacular actor by any stretch the imagination but he can act and he's done some very solid dramatic roles as his career has, has progressed he's still very watchable you know over over all these decades he's still very watchable on screen i've always liked him Richard Dreyfus, I've seen less of him. You know, Close Encounters, I guess, would be probably his most famous role. He's in a very different way, but similar in a sense that he can be very funny too, Richard Dreyfus, He can be a very funny guy, but, you know, very good in dramatic roles. I can't pick out what my favorite performance of his is, but I find him fairly versatile. And, you know, his range, he's, I don't want to say it's narrow, but he's he's in his, his own bandwidth there. But he can do comedy and he can do drama. And I think he's great. He's kind of more or less retired now. Now, I think, which is too bad because I think he's got lots of talent. You know, very watchable pair of guys here. They're both very relatable. They're both very down to earth. Like they're not, you know, how Hollywood is, right? Everybody's super pretty, jacked with a six pack. And these are two kind of regular dudes. And I, I really like that. 
Yeah, I mean, they're relatable for the most part. I relate more to Dreyfus in different roles than Murray, because Murray's a bit more bombastic and outlandish, in a sense, in many of his roles, especially the comedic ones. Can't really attest to Murray's range. I know he's dipped his hands into more meteor dramatic roles, but I think I just saw Lost in Translation is the one I have seen, and that was an okay film. I don't know if I would give him a ton of credit, but it was it was an adequate performance. I think Dreyfus is the more solid actor, personally. I think he's had a better widespread success in terms of translating across uh, different genres. Because I agree with you, Dreyfus can be funny, but he can be serious. We talk about Jaws. Close Encounters is kind of a movie really not about him. I mean, it's about him, but he doesn't really bring a lot to the table in that particular movie. I think he brought a lot into Jaws, both on the dramatic side and the funny side. But Mr. Holland's Opus as well is another one of my favorites of Dreyfus's. Have you seen that one? No, I haven't seen that one. Very good. It's a movie you need to add onto the list for something, maybe something we can do in the future on this podcast. But I'm a big fan of Richard Dreyfus, and yes, I think he has semi-retired. He just does, I think, cameos here and there. I love the fact that he poked fun at himself in, I think it was Piranha or some kind of shark movie, like one of those cheesy shark B movies, and he was playing an older Hooper, <laughs> fish, fishing in a fucking lake, and then he just gets raped by these Barhanas or sharks or sharktopus or whatever it is. I don't know. I don't know. Forget which one it is. I just saw it on YouTube and it was pretty funny. So I got to go looking for that. And that's pretty good. I always respect an actor who can make fun of himself. Yeah. Yeah. Bill Murray, obviously Ghostbusters being my favorite. Trying to think, guys, I don't want to give my thoughts away on this movie. So I'm going to leave this movie out of that. But I'm trying to think if there's other movies out there of Murray's that I liked. I mean, when I was a kid, I liked Scrooge, but or Scrooged. I think it's Scrooged, right? Scrooged, yeah. Uh, yeah. A movie that hasn't really aged well for me personally. So I'd, I'm trying to think of other ones here, man. And I'm just I'm just lost from, from Murray. I mean, I love Ghostbusters. I love him as Peter Venkman. I've liked him on in you know old rerun clips on Saturday Night Live. And I know he had a lot of talent there. I think Caddyshack's another good one, fun one of his there. But outside of that, I'm trying to think, is there if there's anything of his I really like? But how about you? Is there another one outside of Ghostbusters for Bill Murray here? I like Stripes. It's it's a pretty stupid movie, but I liked him in that. I'm not a big Caddyshack fan myself. I know that puts me in the minority, but whatever. I like Scrooged myself. Oh, Groundhog I think Day. It's, Groundhog. It's, yeah, I mean Groundhog Day. Obviously, that's, he's he's actually really good in Groundhog Day. Yeah, that's yeah. Uh, I like Groundhog. That's a watchable movie. Yeah. yeah, that's a very watchable movie. I think he brought a lot to that. But you know, 80s and 90s is was sort of his wheelhouse. He hasn't had a lot of iconic roles. You know, in the 21st century, you know, he's done a few, you know, he's he's done laws. He still works, but his stuff today isn't quite as good. It is a little bit more dramatic. I'm a fan of Lost in Translation. I thought he did a good job there, but his range is narrower than Richard Dreyfuss's for sure. There's no question, but Bill Murray's better at what he does, I think. Nobody's Bill Murray. Nobody does what he does, and he does it so well when he does it. That makes sense. No, it makes sense. But I think Ghostbusters is the height. I don't think there's any question there. I mean, that's yeah. such a great role for him. And, that, you know, I mean, there's a lot of reasons why it worked, but he's so good in that in that movie. Every, almost every line out of his mouth in that movie is great. It's yes. funny. Yes, it is. So how about we just get right into the plot synopsis and, you know, we can discuss other players in this movie as we progress. Yeah, let's do it. Okay, so meet Bob Wiley Coyote. Sorry, Bob Wiley. A man who can never let go of his compulsiveness and desire to chase down the only thing that gives him a purpose, discussing his multiple phobias with his psychiatrist. Bob's current psychiatrist dumps Bob onto Dr. Leo Marvin, a successful yet egotistical psychiatrist who has no idea Bob's past history before accepting him as a patient. 
After Bob and Leo's first meet and greet, Leo informs Bob he is leaving for vacation for a month and tells Bob to read Leo's latest book called Baby Steps and suggests Bob to read the book for advice and just to relax until he gets back. Due to Bob's compulsive disorders and need to feed off his psychiatrist's teats, he follows Leo to his vacation spot at Leo's Lake Vacation Home. There, Bob continuously torments Leo by embarrassing Leo in the small lake town, showing up at his house uninvited, and Bob starts to bond with Leo's wife and children as they find Bob to be charming and fun, while Leo is stuffy and too analytical. Leo tells Bob to leave and just take a vacation from his problems, and Bob literally takes his advice and takes the vacation in the small lake town where Leo and his family are staying. Leo is probably wishing he could dump Bob onto Dr. Silberman, because that's what Bob does. That's all Bob does, and he will not stop until Leo is dead. Well, at least that's how Leo must be feeling at this time. Leo is also preparing for an interview at his lake house with Good Morning America because of his new book, but due to Bob's unwillingness to leave, he is still around the house when the TV crews arrive and he introduces himself as Leo's patient. Good Morning America improvises and alters the interview process to include Bob and decides to focus more on Bob than Leo during the interview. Frustrated and angry, Leo decides to have Bob committed at a nearby institution, hoping that either the doctors there would commit Bob, or that Bob would latch onto their constant supervision to give Leo a break. However, Bob seems to have pulled out his Jedi mind trick skills, and magically convinces everyone in the institution he is normal, so they let him go. Leo is growing even more frustrated and angry, but is happy that his family is throwing him a surprise birthday party in the evening. Leo puts on his best face, but then suddenly Bob appears at the party and is hugging Leo's sister, and Leo just snaps. A Sith Lord? Leo lunges at Bob and has what we commonly refer to as the Kirk versus Gorn fight, as they slowly roll around on the ground like two old men struggling to get out of a hot tub. <laughs> With the party ruined, Leo's family finally comes to the realization that Bob must finally leave. However, unbeknownst to them, Leo has left the house and plans to kill Bob. Leo steals some gunpowder and with the magic of Hollywood has somehow built a bomb and he's tied up Bob in the middle of the woods, telling Bob this is the latest therapy to end all therapies. A death therapy, if you will, in which Bob doesn't think it's real. Leo leaves Bob tied up with the bomb and Bob finally comes to the realization that the death therapy has freed him from his mental trappings and is able to free himself from the poor knots Leo tied. Quint would have been disappointed, but would have been right. Hooper had city hands after all. Leo is prematurely celebrating on the dock in front of the house with his family, even though they are unaware why Leo is so happy, when Bob suddenly shows up with a birthday cake from the house without the bombs strapped to him anymore. Smile, you son of a... Boom! And the quarterback is toast. With Bob surviving and Leo's vacation house destroyed, Leo goes into a catatonic state. His family is unable to reach him, and we cut to Bob and Leo's sister's wedding sometime in the future, where Leo finally gets out of his state yelling, No! to stop the wedding. It didn't work, and Bob and Leo's sister still get married, leaving Leo to continually suffer as he is slowly digested over a thousand years. The end. <laughs> so, any thoughts after that? You know, jokes aside, if you had to read that as a pitch, what do you think? Any interest here? Well, if I, you know, if I got in the Wayback Machine and I was at a Blockbuster and I picked up the VHS box and looked at the back, I probably would have probably would have put that back on the shelf. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't feel pain or, or pity <laughs> or remorse or fear. And he absolutely will not stop. I don't know. It seems like good setup for a com you know, just like from the synopsis is like a good setup for the comedy and then and then escalates to interesting area, but you know, and I don't want to give away too many of my thoughts up front. Okay. Yeah, I mean I wrote it so I mean I enjoyed writing it. Some opportunity to just joke around and throw in some quotes. But yeah, I mean I'm with you. If I read something like this, it's like I'm more interested in the actors. 
and see yeah. how, like, if, I, if I'm looking at this as a movie, okay, it's, you know, Bill Murray, it's Richard Dreyfus, watchable actors, and this is the pitch, and this is the setup, so, okay, maybe this will be interesting, because, you know, Dreyfus can be, you know, kind of quick to temper, and Murray is funny in a goofball kind of way, so it's kind of interesting. That's really the only interest, is really the, the whole point of the movie, is just these two guys going at each other, so... I'll hit you with some trivia here. So, the movie was released on May 17th in 1991. The estimated budget was about $35 million and it made $64 million domestically. It was released around a time when the likes of Madonna's Truth or Dare, Mannequin hmm. on the Move, and Only the Lonely were out in theaters with respect to comedies. <laughs> yeah, um, okay, yeah. Yeah, so Backdraft was released the following week, but it wasn't until City Slickers hit in June that there was true competition for the film, which is why, maybe one of the reasons why this movie came a modern hit at the time because these days you, you know they, they say you have to make double the money and this is only domestic numbers there's no international or, or home video sales mm. here attached so it's 64 domestically off 35 million budget so almost getting to double the budget and then that's kind of where and you know marketing I think was a lot cheaper back then so you could probably say it was a modest hit this movie sits, for what it's worth, this movie sits at 83% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. So let's talk about Frank Oz here. So Mr. Yoda himself, or if you're a fan of the Muppets, Miss Piggy, or was it Fozzie Bear? I think he did Fozzie Bear. Didn't he do all of them pretty much? I don't know. I thought, or did he do, I don't know who else he did. Animal. I think he did. Didn't he do Animal? We, we might have to research this. I mean, you know, he, he was obviously a big part of a lot of those performances uh, on the Muppets, but which I am a huge fan, but. Oh yeah. When I was, when I was little, I loved the Muppets. I have not seen the Muppets since probably I was, you know, eight, seven or eight, anything Muppet related. So I mean, I have very oh, really? memories. No, nothing like any okay. of this Muppet revival shit. I, I have stayed clear to avoid. Yeah. It, it doesn't, it doesn't work my childhood because you know, it doesn't work anymore. Right. I mean, the, the original stuff surprisingly holds up fairly well, still pretty watchable stuff. I mean, the revivals and that, like the movies, they gear, they didn't never struck the right tone, but the old stuff holds up pretty well. Yeah. When I was young, I loved Kermit, Kermit the Frog. So for me, I, an animal, you know, I always have fond memories there, but Frank Oz himself as it, let's focus on him as a director because he is more than the Muppets or Yoda. Some of his more famous movies that he's directed or the ones that he's known best for outside of this one is Dark Crystal, Muppets Take Manhattan, Little Shop of Horrors, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, Bowfinger, Stepford Wives, any of these? I, mean, I know you've probably seen, obviously, than the Muppets, because you're seeing Muppets, Dark Crystal. I believe you've seen Bowfinger. I mean, is there any thoughts on any of these movies or any other ones that I've missed uh, that you've seen and you encountered yeah, uh, him as a director? I mean, I would say, I mean, maybe Dark, his Dark Crystal, you know, we're still dealing with, you know, puppets and animatronics and things like that. But I love the Dark Crystal. That's a really good movie, I think. Very mature for, you know, it's, it's a movie, like it's for kids, but it's very mature. It's dark. Really think that's an excellent film. I remember when Bowfinger came out and I was really looking forward to it. The trailers for Bowfinger were great. It looked yes. hilarious and yeah. it's such a turd of a movie. It is. It is, but <laughs> I do enjoy Eddie Murphy in that movie. As yeah, you know what is, he... Eddie Murphy does a great job in that movie. What I liked about Eddie Murphy in that movie, if I recall correctly, because he plays himself for a bit, but like a caricature of himself, basically, and he's such a douchebag. So that was pretty funny. And then they go find a lookalike, which then I was like, eh, I don't really like this too much. And Steve Martin was just off in Bowfinger. So 
which is too bad because Steve Martin can be very funny as well. So Frank Oz is a director for live action. I don't know that he quite is able to hit all the right buttons with his actors all the time. But, you know, when he's got some puppets, baby, he got that puppet shit locked down. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So he's the puppet master, we should say. He's the puppet master. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That's right. You can't take that title away from him for obvious reasons as the wise old Jedi master himself. So I guess he was born to be green or born to be born to put his hand up something he was born to put his hand up a green creature's ass is what he was born (laughs) yes and and we're all better for it yes yes but you may be surprised to learn that he was considered directing one of the earlier harry potter movies at one time i don't Mm -hmm. know the story of where that came from i mean or why he didn't do it another tidbit here is apparently both bill murray and dreyfus hated each other on the set I think this movie just catered to, I don't know if they were method acting or if it's just two type A personalities hitting on each other and just colliding, but they just got on each other's nerves on the set and they both regret. I think they liked the outcome of the movie, but they hated the process of making the movie is what they've quoted Hmm. a few times since the movie's release. And you may be surprised to know that the original pitch of the movie was to pair Bill Murray with Woody Allen. And even Woody Allen was considering directing it, but after Allen wouldn't commit to the film, Frank Oz was brought it on board and his original choice one of his earlier choices to play Dr. Leo Marvin was not Richard Dreyfus, but it was Patrick Stewart. Oh, I want to see that movie, man. I want to go to the alternate universe where that happened. Yeah, I don't know. I'm trying to think of... I've seen Patrick Stewart in some comedies, and honestly, the funny thing is, I, you know I'm an American Dad fan. He can be funny on that show. But live action comedy, I haven't seen him really pull it off. He did the that one show on Stars now just recently, which I liked the first season, and I thought he was pretty good. I forget what that was called now because I'm Blunt it. Talk. Was it Love Talk? Blunt Talk, yeah. Blunt Talk, right? Did you watch it? No, I haven't seen it. Blunt Talk, no. yeah. So I mean, I I think he he's okay there with the right director. You could see it, but I think Stewart has also kind of relaxed himself into these kind of roles. Mm. You know, as he's aged. If I put myself back then in the early '90s when he's still in the midst of Star Trek. I just don't see it. It's not because of what he's done in Star Trek. I've seen him try his hand in other comedies. I know he did a movie called Jeffrey where he played a gay painter. That was okay, but some of his other roles, I just don't know. (laughs) Yeah, fair enough. That's true. You know, he was a much more serious guy back then, I think, and excellent actor, but yeah, to be in a comedy, you kind of need to, you need to be a little chill, I think. Yeah. Okay, so the movie opens with, you see Bob here, and he's trying to convince himself that he feels really great and wonderful. He's saying, I feel good, I feel wonderful, I feel good, I feel wonderful. You know, maybe he's the original guardian of the will. I'm one with the force, yeah, the force is totally, with me, yeah. kind of thing, so... <laughs> When you first see Murray here right at the beginning in his apartment, it's almost like kind of the beginning of Back to the Future in a sense. You get like a couple Mm. of different contraptions in his apartment and you just kind of notice that he's kind of just off. I don't even know if he was really working from home because he even had a punch clock. I don't know if you noticed that, like he did did a punch clock. So I would assume he has a job where he's working from home because he has all these kind of anxieties. But what your opening take here as he's leaving? Well, that's what I actually, that is what I was wondering is what does he do? Because I got the impression he's working from home. He's got the punch clock. So what is his job? That was actually what I was wondering. Like, what does he do? Clearly, he has some neuroses. He's got some... 
you know, he's got, he's whether a he's obsessive impulsive or whatever. He's got all of the mental illnesses. So I he's can see all, that. He's got all of the diabetes. Like, seriously. Yeah, he's, he definitely does. Yeah. So, but that was what I was wondering. I'm like, what's, what is he doing for work? I have no idea. And based on this yeah. movie, I don't even know how he can work. I mean, you know, nowadays in 2017, as we record this, you can work from home pretty effectively. Lots of people can do it, right? You got computers and cell phones and the whole thing, the interwebs. And in 1991, you didn't have any of that shit. So what the fuck is he doing? I have no idea. I mean, uh, it was a little bit over the top, a bit as he's chanting his mantra to himself there to keep himself whatever calm or even or, or whatever. I mean, I get it. I get the joke, but it wasn't, I wasn't like, this is funny at this point, you know? Yeah, I mean, what about I, you? I, yeah, I agree. I mean, like the first thing I wrote down or noticed was this, and maybe we can touch on this is that the first thing I hear is that cheesy 80s, 90s TV Xmas movie music. Like, yeah. That's the one thing, like, and this is kind of a trope in all of these kind of comedies. And I don't watch these kind of comedies right now. So I stay clear of shitty comedies that try to be like this. I'm not saying this is a shitty comedy. I'm just saying that when you hear music like this, it reminds yeah. you of shitty comedies. Yes, or, it does. Yeah. I just don't know. Like, it's happy kind of, it's not elevator music. I don't even know how to describe it. Like, what kind of music is it? Happy music. Yeah. I don't know what it is. I, it is. It's kind of happy and whimsical, just light. And, yeah, you know, but you're right. It's not elevator music. It's 80s, 90s comedy music. Which is now transferred into TV Christmas movie music of our era. Yeah, that's right. They're going back to the well because the rights are probably, it's, you know, the, the rights are cheap. You can throw into the TV Christmas movie that I know that your wife likes to watch, that, that my spouse likes to watch. So we still hear it and it sucks. Yes, it does. Yeah, so that's yeah. the first thing I noticed. I mean, I didn't mind these opening scenes with him because, again, I mentioned, you know, I thought it was kind of my eyebrows start to raise my interest peaks a little bit because I see, okay, there's a punch clock. He's a little wacky. He's got Nick Cage hair, wild scientist hair. You know, he's not perfect and, you know, he's chanting to himself. I liked this intro to the character, but then it kind of just goes nowhere because then you just cut away mm. and you see that his previous psychiatrist isn't you know, answering his calls and then quickly cuts to Leo Marvin, who's played by Richard Dreyfus in his office. And you can see that he's talking on the phone to somebody else. And then he gets the call from Bob's current psychiatrist who's faking retiring. In reality, he's escaping. <laughs> Bob, as we yeah. are learned, because he says, finally, free, because he's managing, manages to dump Bob onto Leo. And I love how this, the one thing I loved here is the psychiatrist who dumps Bob onto Leo, he cleverly uses Leo's ego, like trying to impress him and make, you know, fluff up his ego to take Bob. He says something along the lines, there's only one psychiatrist that can fix this guy, and that would be you. I think he yeah. says something along those lines, a little reverse psychology there, right? Because, you know, I, yeah, you that, know you're I brilliant. Like that, yeah. I know you don't like flattery, but you're brilliant kind of thing. Yeah, no, I like that. Yeah, He's fluffing him for sure, which is a nice touch there, and he totally eats it, eats takes it. that bait. Yeah. yeah, he takes the bait. And then this is where we first start to get a sense of who Leo is and how egotistical he is, how much of self-importance he puts onto himself and how he views himself. So before they have their meet and greet, what are your first impressions of Dr. Leo Marvin? He definitely comes across as a gigantic douche, doesn't he? I mean, just looking at the guy, he looks like a dude who has a pile of cocaine in his desk drawer. That's what he comes Ellis. across to me. <laughs> yeah, he's Ellis. <laughs> Absolutely, he's Ellis. It's a Rolex. 
that's right. <laughs> I mean, rich, well-established. He's got the close-crop beard. Actually, you know what? Like, why did you touch on the beard? That's an epic. That's an epic trim job on that beard. That yes. thing is was so well manicured. I was. I'll be honest with you. Half the time, I was staring at his beard. I was staring at his beard the whole time. I'm like, man, that's an epic beard. And it's like, if I trim my beard that short, I don't have any facial hair at all. Like, it's all splotched. Like, it's perfect. It looks, it's it looks so like a white too. lawn. Yeah, no, yeah, it's perfect. Yeah. The white lawn on his face is fucking fantastic. So I, great about Richard Dreyfuss. I don't even know if it's real. That's how good it no, is. No, no, it's real. So at least we agree on the beard. I like Santa Claus is watching this movie. He's like, that motherfucker's got a beard. That's solid. That's a solid beard well, right there. Yeah, but it's a different kind of beard. Most people these days want the, you know, Joel Thornton. What's that other guy? What's the other defenseman? Red Burns. Red Burns. They want to be able to braid that shit down to their belly button. That's what the caveman beard. Yeah, people want the caveman beard. Which is beard. ridiculous. This is not a caveman beard. Yeah. This is... No, professional beard. No. This is an Ellis Coke Monster beard, is what this is. Ellis did have a very good beard too. He had a good beard too. Actually, he did. Yeah. yeah. Cocaine <laughs> makes your beard grow perfectly symmetrical. No, no, no. you're just that full. focused. What's that? You're just that focused in your yeah. You're that your man room. Yeah, yeah. You know, he's got stacks of his books in his high-rise New York office there. So we're definitely getting a very clear picture of who this guy's supposed to be. He's more concerned with fame and success than being good at or helping patients. Oh, for sure. But now let's, Bob finally comes, like, you know, Leo's a bit surprised that after accepting the patient that his next appointment is Bob. So he goes, oh, okay. So he doesn't mind having a quick meet and greet with him before he leaves for vacation. So they have their first scenes together. I liked these opening scenes for the most part in their meet and greet. What did you think? I did like this as well. In fact, this was probably my favorite part of the film here. It's almost heartfelt performance from Bill Murray here as he's trying to describe all of his various issues to the psychiatrist. You know, he's, I think he pulls off a good balance here of, you know, obviously a guy who's got a lot of problems, but who's like, he's holding it together, but he's hanging on. He's just hanging on by a thread, you know? And I thought that was a really... It's a good job by Bill Murray here. I mean, it's not a great job because he's still sort of leaning toward... He's leaning into the comedy more here, which, I mean, obviously is what you're doing because that's the type of movie we're in here. But it worked fairly well. And uh, Richard Dreyfuss does a pretty good job. Well, he plays it straight also. and narrow. Yeah, because... Yeah, cause, he cause... plays it straight because he's just he's asking questions and, you know, he's, he's doing a lot of the like, what do you think? How does that make you feel? Like, what do you... You know, he's, he keeps throwing it back to him, which is how I envision that type of uh, initial interview would go if, you know, if you engage with the psychiatrist. So it works. It feels fairly genuine. And, you know, it's not a lot of laughs to be had here, I don't think. But there was one good joke uh, about the Neil Diamond, where his ex-wife loved yeah. Neil Diamond and <laughs> yeah. he didn't. So, yeah, that was it. That was a pretty good joke, actually. That was pretty good. <laughs> so there's that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, I agree I, with you. I love good. these first scenes. I wrote down in my notes too. Murray does an excellent job here because he opens up and he has good fine balance between a bit of comedy and someone who's really trying to express himself that he has issues and he needs help. And then yeah. Dreyfus plays the polar opposite and he does a great job as just a straight and narrow psychiatrist as he should. He's asking questions. He's listening. He's focused. The only problem is, is then he gets a bit silly immediately. 
after a few yeah. minutes because then all of a sudden Murray goes and do Tourette's syndrome. He's faking it. I think he fakes a heart attack too. But then I loved how Leo just kind of, you know, stops everything here and he goes, you know, okay, he knows he's rushed for time. He's leaving. And he says, there's a groundbreaking book. But I love how Dreyfus and the character of Leo starts looking around an enormous bookshelf, but there's a whole, yeah. pretty much almost like half of it's lined up with his new book. And he's still going through all of it from the audience's perspective. We can see that's yeah. all his book, but Bob doesn't know that. So he's like painfully looking for a book and all the same book, his book. And he just pulls ones out and says, here, this is one. Yeah. I love that one. I love that little joke. <laughs> that was good. Yeah. So the book was called Baby Steps. And he gets Bob to start walking around slowly like baby steps. And then you get this joyful music coming back, which is just atrocious. We talked about it. It's bad. I just wrote it down again. Fuck, I hate this music. So Bob learns that Leo is going on vacation. And you get a scene where Bob is trying to find out where Leo is going on vacation here. And now you get a different scene where I wouldn't say it's a unique way of doing it. I think it's pretty typical in movies like this where you get the split screen tactic. With phone mm. calls, you get Bob calling, and then Leo says, no. Bob calls again, fakes being his sister. Leo gets a little more angry. No, you can't do that, Bob. And then Bob pretends to be a detective, and he goes to, I guess, their... What is it called? Switchboard, yeah. Right? But, They're operators, I guess, right? Like, yeah, for, I, I guess, know. a bunch of different psychiatrists or, or a group of doctors. Well, it would have been, I th- I'm assuming they're all part of the same psychiatric practice. Like there'd be, you know, four or five doctors, like a law firm only for a psychiatrist. It'd be the same kind of thing. Yeah, but the one thing I didn't like about this is in addition to that split screen tactic, which I think is kind of very amateurish, but what really peeved me off here is I thought there was some inconsistency with Bob and his character and his phobias Mm -hmm. because he was able to just pretend to be a detective, go to the physical location of where these operators are operating the switchboard, and he just kind of talks to everybody normally. He has no phobias. He sits down in between a bunch of people. He starts asking questions, and I find it inconsistent with his character because his phobias have just suddenly vanished. He's able to to just put them all aside. You could look at it that way, or you could look at it the other way that he never had these phobias to begin with. What did you think of these scenes, and what's your take? Yeah, I found it wildly inconsistent with this character. This is a pretty high level of sophistication for a guy who has all of these phobias, right? So he can just go in there. It's a confidence play, right? And he doesn't have any confidence. So, I mean, I know he's extremely motivated to get in touch with his psychiatrist. Okay, I, I, I get that. But to do something like this is, if you were the pin of mental health, you would have a hard time doing this because you just wouldn't have the confidence. So if you want to take the other way, what you say, which is, well, maybe he didn't have these phobias in the first place. Well, I don't like that either, because that's saying that he's either pretending to have phobias in order to what? Get attention? That doesn't track for me so far. Or, you know, the classic, well, it's all in your head, which is kind of what the movie is doing, which is you know, basically making fun of mental illness, right? So that doesn't sit right with me either, right? So from any direction here, this scene this scene bugs me and I don't find it very consistent. And if there were some laughs here, you know, you can kind of give it a break, but it also wasn't very funny. So yeah, no, this bugged me, this scene. Yeah, complete waste of time. But I mean, this they had to figure out a way for him to play detective so he could find out where the vacation home is. I just felt the writing here could have been a little bit more creative because, as we talked about, it's inconsistent with the character and it's like and it wasn't even funny to begin with too, so not a fan. So, the movie then moves along as we unfortunately waste some time, in my opinion, as we see Bob struggle to get on a bus and go to Lake 
Winnipesaukee, I think that's what it's called, where Leo's uh, vacation home is. Yeah, and they actually spend like a good few minutes of him pacing back and forth, and he's doing his self-talk, and the driver's getting impatient, and then there's another few minutes of him on the bus, and you can see the people around him getting annoyed because he's just talking to himself, or he's having some issues, and then he gets off the bus, and then everyone's happy. So, you know, he finally gets to the town, and he starts shouting. Just as soon as he leaves the bus, he's not looking around, he just starts shouting, Dr. Leo Marvin, as loud as he can, and, you know, of course, you know, coincidences, Leo's coming out of a store nearby, and him and his family notice him, so what did you think of this setup here? These scenes, him getting there, anything worthwhile here? Is this comedy working for you? Did Bill Murray play it in any of an interesting way here? I didn't laugh here. I don't think there was a lot of good comedy here. You know, when he gets off the bus and he's shouting, you know, Leo Marvin, Dr. Leo Marvin, you know, it's play for comedy, but it wasn't funny. I understand that, you know, we kind of need to get through some of this awkwardness in order to get to sort of the center point of the movie, which is, you know, Bob invading Leo's vacation time. Like, that's where the center of the story happens, right? So we got to get him there somehow. And it's kind of a ridiculous, because it's a ridiculous concept, we have to have some ridiculousness to get him there. So we can give the movie a break up to a point to get him into the situation. But I don't know. I mean, I figure you've got good talent here with Richard Dreyfuss and Bill Murray. You know, and Frank Oz is certainly a capable enough director and he can handle lightness. He can handle comedy with, you know, his time with the Muppets and things like that. So it's a shame. I guess it comes down to the writing. There's just nothing, nothing's funny about this situation or the dialogue. So I'm just like I'm watching a comedy. I'm watching actors I like. I want to laugh at this point. I feel like somebody's hoarding the laughs in some bag over in the corner. I'm like, fuck, man, get those laughs out of that bag. Man. I want to laugh here. Yeah, I know. I feel the same exact way. I mean, this is just, you know, I, in my opinion, I think it just they could have just show him get off the bus. They didn't have to show him be on the bus. It's just waste of time and material that I guess some people would say, well, how did he get on the bus? Did he not struggle with that? But anyways. So Leo confronts Bob after he sees him there screaming his name, tells him to go to a coffee shop, wait for a phone call. And fortunately, now we hit a stereotype and a trope in any Hollywood movie or a comedy where we see, you know, immigrants who have been wronged by the white man, (laughs) (laughs) who are the owners of the shop. When they find out that Bob's waiting for Leo to call him, they seem to, you know, tell him that they hate Leo because he bought a house that they wanted this will be a recurring joke with these with these two immigrants, a husband and wife couple, the mom and pop, as we move later in the movie. But let's just go straight to, they say they'll take him to where his house is. You don't need to wait. We cut right to the lake house, which is Leo. And, and you see Leo and his family. And you get a few scenes with him and his family there. And he's preparing, talking to him about the interview that he's going to have with Good Morning America about his book. So you get to meet his wife, who's played by Julie Haggerty, and the son and the daughter and believe the son's name is Sigmund and the daughter's name is Anne or Anna. Obvious reference to Sigmund Freud. And I believe Sigmund Freud's daughter in real life was either Anne or Anna. So they named the daughter in this movie after the daughter of Sigmund Freud. So just another little piece of trivia there. But you get some scenes now with Leo and his son too and Leo and his daughter and you're starting to get a feel that they're not really even though they love their dad. It's a typical kind of rebellious phase in these kids and also the fact that Leo is also kind of very critical and analytical because he is a psychiatrist and he's a bit stuffy. So it's setting stage for why they would attach themselves or lean towards wanting to like Bob so easily because he's a breath of fresh air. 
So you get a diving scene here with Leo and kind of shows his impatience that Leo has with his family. He's kind of rushing the moment and then Bob shows up. So what did you think of some of these early scenes here, the introduction to the family? Well, I mean, they all kind of fill their roles uh, fine. And I can imagine it probably sucks to have a psychiatrist as a dad. So the strained relationship there between him and his kids, I mean, that's it's pretty believable. The kids, I think they acquit themselves fairly well here. You know, as we've talked about many times on the show, it is hard to have child actors uh, and have them do a good job, but I thought they did fine. They warm up to Bob pretty quickly. I mean, and like he's a patient. I don't know. Yeah, it's a little quick. And yeah, like, you know, like, he's a patient. Yeah, so this I mean, is this... you don't think it's a little weird? Like, uh, yeah. yeah, but this is not real. This is not reality. This is a movie. Well, sure, but if we're not in, you know, we're not in Neverland or Oz or... Or Michael Jackson's um, Wonderland. Or Michael Jackson's Wonderland here, exactly. It would have been freaked the fuck out if they were Michael Jackson's Wonderland, that's for sure. You know, but it's still it's still planet Earth and our reality here. It's not so far removed. I mean, it's the 90s. Like, wouldn't they be naturally... A- Leo's a little freaked out. This dude's here. You know, he's a meth patient. So it's a little fast. It's a little fast and it doesn't add up. But I mean, you're not going to spend another 20, 30 minutes of the movie for Bob trying to warm up to the family. It's got to happen right Right. away or the movie's going to drag. So I can understand from a filmmaking perspective, they skip these scenes along and have the family immediately bond with Bob. I asked that question myself when I watched this movie now. You know, when I was a kid and I watched this movie, I was like, okay, you know, it doesn't matter to me. But now I watch it as an adult and I'm going... Even if I was a psychiatrist or a psychologist and I see a patient show up on my doorstep, whether it's at home or on vacation, I would be oh, I'm calling pissed. The, I'm calling the cops. Immediately. No question. Like, on a dime. 911, that's it. And yeah. that's what anybody, any rational, reasonable, healthy person would do, which I guess Leo is not. So, no. you know, there you have it. Yeah. His wife is played by Julie Haggerty, and she's been around. She's done quite a bit of work on both film and TV, but she's not really famous for anything. I'd say the most thing she's been famous for is Airplane, which actually was her first role. Oh, okay. Fuck, I didn't know where I knew her from. Right, Airplane, okay. Airplane and the Airplane 2 movie. That was her first role was the original Airplane. You know, she's made some other movies here. I mean, I think she was in a movie called (laughs) U-Turn. Freddy Got Fingered. (laughs) <laughs> oh, Tom Green. I remember yeah, Tom got Green. Yeah. Fuck um, that guy. Yeah, yeah. That guy's a little... Uh, that's a separate story. But I mean, oh, like, man. th- those are probably her more famous roles, I would say. <laughs> I haven't seen some of her early work, like Lost in America or Goodbye in New York. And I mean, I'm sure that some of these are okay movies, but... If What About Bob, Airplane, and Freddy Got Fingered is one of her big movies here, I'm not sure. And on TV, I mean, she's not been in anything. She's been in shows here and there, but nothing nothing special. And she hasn't acted. I mean, she's. I think she's acting on a TV show right now called Trial and Error, according to Wikipedia. But So she's still active, but she hasn't really been in a lot of big tentpole films. So I guess her claim to fame could be Airplane. So just a bit yeah. of trivia there. So Leo convinces Bob to leave, and as he's leaving, Bob's daughter picks Bob up on the side of the road and invites him to go sailing with her friends, and Leo is really upset that Bob is hanging out with her, and then we get this strange fucking scene with the puppets. Like, 
You know what I mean? Do you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Remember? That or, was... Yeah. He's trying right. to talk to her, his daughter, after the sailing, saying, why are you having Bob come along with you and all this stuff? And then she doesn't really want to talk to him, so he stops her. And in public, because she's they're in the middle. He's carrying this around in public. And he gets a puppet of him and a puppet of her, and they start talking to each other. And he's controlling both. And that was just fucked up. What did you think of that? Yeah, man, fucked up. I mean, I don't know what they were going for here. I mean, obviously, the kid's mortified, rightly so. She's like, I don't want to do this. And, you know, we get the impression that this is a trick that he's he's pulled out a couple of times on. Presumably, he's got puppets of his whole family. So I don't know if this is, like, is this, is this Frank Oz, like, going back to his wheelhouse? Like, he knows how to work some puppets? That's a good point. I didn't even think about that. <laughs> you know? I mean, it's it was so weird, and I don't know if this is what they were trying to do. I mean, maybe it is, is that Leo starts to become unhinged. He starts to be the one who is obviously not dealing with his mental health issues very well and starts to unravel a little bit because of all of these issues that are surrounding him, which, you know, would be interesting in a different movie than this one. So only a crazy person has dolls of his whole family and carries them around so that when their conflict arises, he can whip out the doll so they can resolve the conflict. Only a crazy person would do this. So maybe they're just trying to show us that, you know, oh, he's the crazy one, not Bob. Bob's just a fun-loving, carefree guy who needs to get out a little more. It's really this stuffy, buttoned-down, rich, white asshole who has the mental problems. Like, is that the message we're trying to get here? I'm assuming so, yeah. It's just really fucking crazy. This is kind of really the start of the second act here, where we're breaking down and Bob is just never leaving Leo alone and Leo is getting more and more upset. So in addition to this, Bob just keeps showing up on the doorstep, even though Leo said, go home and take a break from your problems, take a vacation. So Bob decides to stay. And then Bob starts to help his son learn to dive instead of Leo. And then, you know, Leo pushes Bob in the water and then the wife and the family say, you know, you shouldn't have done that. So now Bob stays over for dinner. I really find the only interesting commentary here is, as we said, you know, Leo's family is so welcoming and open to Bob's ways, and that's because Leo is a prude, that they find this mentally deranged man relief and almost a savior, because Bob can do no wrong in their eyes. Maybe they've gone crazy, the family, just being with Leo. They must have. If a normal conflict ends with fucking dolls, puppets, yeah, I guess if everything's crazy, then nothing's crazy, you know? Like, the whole life is crazy. The question I really have here is then from an audience perspective outside of us, like just say your average North American citizen, are they sympathizing with Leo or they're on Bob's side at this point? No, I think they're definitely on Bob's side. And I think for a couple of reasons. One, just that Bill Murray's a little bit more relatable in his performance and in that character is... He's fun. He's having a good time. And he's basically a middle class working guy. And Leo's just this elitist, you know, rich white asshole who's a psychiatrist. And there's not a whole lot of respect. If you look at the time frame, I mean, one, even today, most people don't have a lot of respect for mental illness issues. So as such, the people who treat those issues are generally not highly regarded individuals. There's, you know, he's seen as pompous, arrogant, you know, that which was played to great comedic effect for almost 20 years with Kelsey Grammer as Fraser Crane. You know, in the public consciousness, most people think mental illness is phony, is phony, right? It's just, oh, it's just in your head, which, I mean, it's just true, but that doesn't mean that it's not real, right? So there's no respect for mental illness. So there's no respect for the psychiatrist. So they're really playing up him really being, you know, a total cock wagon. And Bob is the, you know, sure, he's quirky, he's zany, uh, but, you know, we, you know, he's, he's fun, he's lovable, so we can relate to that. 
that's what they're playing on. And I agree. Yeah. However, from a personal perspective, I sympathize with Leo. Sympathize with him, not from his for his, him being pompous or elitist, but just because like it's a guy you just can't buy a break. Everybody is against you and can't see the truth. I mean, this is my life on a daily basis. So, <laughs> <laughs> and you know it's true. Yeah, I, I can vouch for you on that one. You're not exactly Joe Normal yourself. Let's just put that out there. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. I'm not going to deny. But I, I mean, you're right. Yeah, nothing. I wanted to sympathize with him other than the fact that he's kind of an asshole. But you're right. Like, he is right the whole time. He shouldn't be here. This is a patient. I'm on vacation. He can't show up at my house and hang out with my family. Like, it's not right. He's correct in all of that. And so it's really strange to watch, you know, I think what you're feeling as well is like, you know, he's right. Like everybody else is, basically everybody else is crazy for lack of a better term. Yeah, yeah, and I agree. But I agree with what you're saying is that from a filmmaking marketing perspective and what the filmmakers are trying to do is they're trying to get the average person to and is sympathizing with Bob. Because of, you know, the class issues, elitist, whichever way we want to peg it. Everyone wants to sympathize with the working class guy, which is Bob. And then Bill Murray is the actor. So because, you know, Bob was over for dinner because he pushed him in the water. Bill Murray can't go home because all of a sudden it's raining outside, I guess. So Bill Murray has a really uncomfortable, it's a very uncomfortable scene to watch. But I can understand it because Bill, you know, Bob is like a child here. He has a very childlike look at the world. He acts childish and he, ha- he starts bonding with his son. He's convincing his son to swear consistently. They sleep in the same room together. They're having kind of like a little sleepover. And this kind of started to, re- unfortunately, remind me of Star Trek Insurrection with Data and that kid. You know, always, yeah. <laughs> always make time to play. And it's just like, yeah. I, I wasn't a fan of this, but I guess Bill Murray needed to latch on to somebody in the family, which was the son. So gives him an excuse to stay around even more so. So the next morning is the Good Morning America interview. And Leo obviously wants Bob to leave. He tells Bob the night before, leave at 6 a.m. They're coming at 7 or something like that. Get out. And while Bob is on time to leave the house, he still lingers around because he will never leave. So the TV crews arrive. And now I want to get your thoughts on how this whole thing played out and how effective it was in terms of its comedic angle, I should say. What I liked most was how Leo was is trying to stage the whole thing. He's like, well, you know, like, what if I'm over here with, like, my elbow on the fireplace? And should we have the hunting rifle here and all, and all that stuff? So he's concerned about his, as we've talked before, he's concerned about his image and the fame and the success of the book. And he didn't give a shit about helping Bob or anybody else. You know, it's all, it's all about him and he's and his uh, selfishness. But it's a big moment in his career. So, like, you know, like... You can understand. I think you and I can, like, yeah, you can totally understand. Like, I want me on fucking TV. Like, this has got to go really well. And why doesn't Bob just fuck the fuck off? Like, go away. And, you know, they have to spin everything around so that they put him in the interview as well, where, of course... And the family supports it. They love it. Yeah, they love it. They're like, oh, you know, because basically the family's attitude to the whole thing is, oh, lighten up, dad, which is kind of cheap, you know, in all honesty. I mean, does the guy need to lighten up a little bit? Yeah, sure he does. But, you know, to this extreme, to this effect, why do they got to fuck with his shit like this? Like, this is a big deal. He's on Good Morning America. I mean, that's a big that's a big deal. And they're like, ah, it's all good, dad. Chill out. No, no. Totally yeah, I mean, uncool. Like, yeah, if I have a family member or my parents or one of my parents was on a interview, I would make sure that and the TV wanted to interview him, the news, I would make sure it happens. And he's the focus. Yeah. I don't want any other distractions. Yeah, you, you wouldn't actively sabotage it in order to teach that person a Disneyland lesson of, oh, just just chill out, you know? Let no. Yeah. And as such, 
It's also, it's just, it wasn't funny. There no, weren't any laughs here. The only enjoyment I have, of, there's two things I love about this sequence, and you already touched on it, is you focus on how Richard Dreyfus is just holding it together. He is just so upset, but he can't show it. And he's so uncomfortable, but he can't really show it. And he's trying to put on his best face through this whole thing, and he just sits there. He doesn't really talk because he's not given the opportunity to. And then the best joke of the movie, in my opinion, which most people see if they ever saw the trailer, was when after the TV crews go and they finally kick Bob out of the house and the family is still saying, what is your problem, Dad? He's gone now. And you go, you think he's gone? (laughs) He's never gone. And then he opens up the door and he says, is this radical new therapy? Then he goes, you see? (laughs) So I did like that. I think that's, for me, is the highlight of the humor. I always get a kick out of that scene. And I think Dreyfus is the real hero in this sequence here because you're just seeing how angry he is, but he can't release it. He can't show it while the crews are filming. So so then now we get into the third. Yeah. So Leo pretends to take Bob for a little talk, saying he's not mad, and he drives him to a psychiatric institution. And everybody there, and this is now another trope of just a comedy, is just now everybody can't see who Bob really is takes him to a professional institution. And this is a guy who they know who Leo is, these other doctors who work there, and they can't take his word for it. And he tries to have him just observe for a little bit, and they say, nope, he's good to go. So what did you think of this? Well, I guess there's a couple ways to go here. I mean, yeah, you're right. Like, okay, we've got a team of team of doctors, a team of doctors in an institution, and they all of a sudden charmed by this guy. They can't take Leo at his word. So it could be that they think that Leo already is just a blowhard. They didn't take him seriously before, so then take him seriously now, and they bring this perfectly charming guy, and he seems perfectly charming, so, you know, whatever. You're just overreacting, and man, there's another layer to that as well now that I think of it. But there's also the, I, I guess the other piece is that Bob does start the only thing that i actually did find interesting about the film to this point is that bob does sort of slowly start to respond to the modicum of treatment that he is receiving from leo because you know leo gave him the book yeah take baby steps and then is like you know what yeah take a vacation from yourself which we, we didn't talk about when they when he did that which i actually thought was a really fascinating ideas, you know, we all get stressed out and we get frustrated and angry, just, you know, whatever happened in life. And we all get inside our own heads a little bit from time to time. And sometimes that lasts for a long time. Sometimes that's just for a few moments, but we all struggle with that. You know, Bob, obviously he's in his own head like 24 seven and it's, you know, it's a scary place. So for him to say like, take a break from, you know, take a vacation from you, take a break from yourself. I thought was interesting. And Bob, I found actually started to respond to that type of treatment. So he's getting better. So he goes to this institution. He isn't holding on to a lot of his phobias anymore. He's kind of is learning how to deal with his baggage. So I guess you could believe at that, you know, he's having a good moment. He is learning how to deal with his shit. So maybe, he, you know, he doesn't deserve to be institutionalized. But, you know, and this is where they, they're flipping the roles, right? Where Bob is starting to be, yep. is starting to screw his hinges down a little bit more. Whereas Leo is getting more starting hinges. to lose it. Yeah. yeah. So, so, okay. I get the reversal there. But again, it's so frustrating. It's like, didn't you fucking listen to me? Like this guy showed up out of nowhere at my house. He's been diagnosed with like a hundred things like just watch him please overnight and they're like hey it's all good leo just chill brother yeah yeah it's so frustrating yeah his goddamn hippies 
and their long hair and marijuanas. <laughs> marijuanas. <laughs> you bring up a good point is that, you know, kind of throughout this movie, I think it would have been more effective if they paid a bit more attention in the writing and the directing and maybe the setup is you would show that reversal. It's obvious where they start and where they end, they're flipped. Yeah. But the problem is, is there's still the inconsistencies we find because Bob, as we talked about, Bob went to that distribution center where the people work. He had no problems there, seems to have no problems here. And I know that Leo gives him good advice, like take a vacation from yourself, do baby steps. And then we'll get to the most famous one at the end, the death therapy, which is a great name, by the way. I love death therapy. Yeah, death therapy. <laughs> um, but I wish there was a bit more of an, I wouldn't say obvious. It's not subtle and it's not obvious. I wish there was just something a little bit more there where you could start to see Bob almost getting there. Because it just seems like he's good in some scenes, then he's bad in some scenes. He's good in some scenes, he's back to his old self in some scenes. And that I didn't like. So I understand what you're saying, and I think they make a good point. But I think a better writing team and a better director here would have made that a bit more of a focus to show that evolution of both characters going from that. I think they did a better job with Leo in that sense. Because you can see Dreyfus, his, his character and his acting, he's getting more and more and more frustrated as the time goes on. And even when he takes him after the Good Morning America thing, even though he kind of flips out a little bit with, the, you know, he's never gone. But then he says, okay, you know what? I apologize. I'm not mad. And he has a plan. He takes him to the institution. Yeah. So he's still true to his character, but you can see the steps, his baby steps in getting unhinged. But I don't think they did that with Bob as well on the flip side. Mm, 100% agree with you. Yeah. And that's too bad. I think if they did that with Bob, I think this movie would be at at a different level than it's standing currently. But we'll see how this wraps up. So now we get to the surprise party. So what happens was Bob was released and Leo doesn't even bother driving him back to town. But Leo's car breaks down, of course, and Bob gets hitches a ride back to the lake house. And when Leo finally does come home, he's all dirty and grimy from trying to fix his car or his tire. Finds out he has a surprise party in the evening. And then you get the dumb. Yep, I guess it's juvenile yet, but I got to chuckle when Leo just does the slow-mo diving into Bob. Because Bob's, you know, at the party and he's having his sister... What do you think of these scenes here? I mean, I guess it's where we're getting the extension of what was happening before, where Leo's becoming unhinged and and Bob is all of a sudden the great guy. And, the, you know, the lead up to this scene here, because basically Leo shows up and he's a mess, right? He's a disaster. So, And it's sort of the classic comedy trope of the surprise party, right? Where you are truly unprepared to have anybody over at your house because you just can walk 12 miles in the mud or whatever. Yeah, I don't know. I mean... Again, there really isn't a whole lot. I can forgive it, the sequence here, if it had some laughs. It's not that funny. I think Richard Dreyfus has been doing a good job. As you were saying, you could see him boiling. Like he's boiling under the surface, like underneath. It's totally calm on the surface and underneath is just a roiling boil. And he's doing an excellent job with that. And that's fine. But this is where it sort of like boils over, right? And then it's just sort of, I don't know, it's just goofy, I, yeah, I suppose. Yeah, it's goofy. So. It's juvenile, right? But I yeah. mean, you know, for the right audience and maybe a younger audience, they laugh at this, right? So finally, with, I guess, 80% of the movie finished, Bob's wife tells Bob, albeit reluctantly, you know, it's not me, that Bob should go, I guess, leave, Bob, but, you know, we really don't want you to go. Even after all of this has happened, and Bob's presence has ruined a surprise party, that the wife has probably spent a good deal of time putting together, she still doesn't really want Bob to leave. But she says, I guess it's better for Leo that you go. 
So I guess we yeah. go back to the same thing. It's just a bit ridiculous, but it's just trying to still fit into this whole setup where everyone can't see who Bob is. But at the same time, Leo has left the house and he breaks into a store. I was hoping he would have dropped the line, where are we going now? Shopping. But I like the... <laughs> <laughs> I like the moment where when Leo breaks into that store, he's actually fantasizing on, on what method to kill Bob. No, no, that would be too quick. No, no, that'd be too messy. Oh, this is just right. That was pretty good, actually. Yeah. I didn't mind that. Yeah, yeah I like that. Because I, I think Dreyfus, this is where Dreyfus, now he's kind of let loose. I yeah. like it when Dreyfus is let loose. Because he can be funny and wild when he's allowed to. And now he's allowed to. Now he's just going to town. He's a little bit more loony, but he has no holes barred. He's given up. He's snapped. He just wants to kill Bob. Yeah, he needs himself a phased plasma rifle and a 40-watt range. With a 45 long slide. <laughs> yeah, with a 45 long slide. The laser sighting. Yes. <laughs> now, Leo somehow gets a bomb put together. He has some gunpowder and a clock. And through, as I mentioned before, <laughs> I don't know how he puts this stuff together. There's no fuse. There's no nothing. I guess nothing is lit. It's just, I got gunpowder in a couple of bags, 20 pounds worth, and a clock. Good luck. Yeah, no, no. Clocks clocks detonate gunpowder. That's that's just science. <laughs> We're not supposed to think about it, but whatever. So he ties up Bob in the middle of the woods, straps his stuff to him, and he says it's death therapy. And he says, you know, it's lucky Leo won't be haunted by Jar Jar Binks because, you know, me saw sparkly glowy. Because after this, he's just gone. That's his plan. He wants Bob finished. What did you think of how these scenes are, how Dreyfus played it, how Bob played it? Because you mentioned before that all of these kind of different radical therapies that Bob is thinking, they're actual therapies, but they're not. They're actually improving his life. And he's freeing, getting freed from his mental trappings, he's becoming more self-aware of his problems. What did you think of all this? Well, it's pretty stupid, I guess. I mean, you know, Bob, being the kind, trusting soul that he is, doesn't realize that he has a real bomb strapped to his person as he's, you know, tied up against a tree trunk or whatever. Like, okay, I, I'm all right with that. He, he's like, oh, this is another, this is therapy. It's fine. You know, it's a test, right? I got to untie myself from all of my baggage or whatever. And that's a, you know, it's a metaphor or something. So, okay, I'm all right with that. And uh, yeah, you know, we get the opportunity to see Leo totally, totally unhinged. But he's trying to straight up murder this guy at the same time. So it's a little bit off. I know we're kind of, you know, we sort of spiral downwards deeper and deeper and deeper, but I don't buy it. It's too silly at this point. Like, if you if you want to kill him, like, you buy a gun and you'd shoot him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know? no. I, I know that that's obviously not the type of movie we're making here, but it's silly. It doesn't really ring true, and I'm, I'm kind of rolling my eyes at this point. Yeah, so am I. I mean, the only thing I enjoy out of this is just watching, again, Dreyfus just let loose. He's happy, he's giggling, he's prancing, he's enjoying telling Bob he's going to die, and I'm going to eat your fish. You know what I'm going to do, Bob? I'm going to eat him. <laughs> that should be a meme. I'm going to eat your fish. <laughs> yeah. I just love Dreyfus, his giggle. Like, that's one thing I always loved about Dreyfus ever since Jaws is I've always loved his giggle. The mayor says, that's what you'd want, your face on the National Geographic. And then you hear Dreyfus just have that kind of laugh. <laughs> yeah, that is a good laugh. <laughs> yeah, I just, I just love that laugh. And you get this laugh now for the next five minutes. And it's just, I love seeing when he's kind of just that joyful. He's a funny character to watch. And I enjoyed it here, too. So then Leo goes home. He's, you know, prematurely celebrating on the dock in front of his house. His family went looking for him because he did leave the house. And I guess they found out he was missing. And then they pull up in the car beside him. And they're happy that he's happy and that they found him. And they're all kind of doing a little celebration on the dock. And then all of a sudden, they hear Bob. And he's coming down from the house with a cake that they never ate from the surprise party. And the bombs aren't strapped to him. And the house goes boom. Now, what would you think of that explosion? 
<laughs> I'm trying to go for something here, man. What'd you think of the explosion? I don't know. I think you're going to need a bigger boat, to be honest with you. <laughs> it was a good explosion. It's a good explosion. It blowed up the house. No question. I just love Leo's look after that, right? Because now he's just kind of doing the twitch in his eyes and he's gone. He has now snapped. Leo is in a catatonic state because he saw his house blow up and Bob is alive. I don't know which one was worse for Leo. <laughs> so, <laughs> If the house had blown up with Bob in it, he would have been all good. Oh, yeah. He would have been great. Yeah. He would have been toasting marshmallows over that house fire and having some of that birthday cake. He would have done the, you know, run across the hot coals kind of thing, right? But doing the limbo and the cha-cha and... Uh, all at the same time. With the hot coals underneath him, he would have been good. Yeah. He would have done everything. But that didn't happen. House is gone. Bob is good. And he is in a catatonic state. What's your thoughts on him just entering that state? Is that satisfaction for you is that from a story perspective seeing that evolution as we talked about how the two characters have mirrored each other in the flipped so what's your thoughts here well it feels like they did it because they didn't know how else to wrap things up at this point for all of bob's problems at the start of the movie he was still a functional human being had a job whatever it was and i could go out you know this isn't really leo like he's he's not really mirroring bob at this point like from the start he's much further gone now and again it just feels like they didn't know what else to do at this point so they're like well we'll just make it so he can't talk anymore <laughs> yeah. you know <laughs> I'm sick and tired of his fucking shit shut him up and that was kind of it. I guess I had to get into a spot where it was so serious that, that he had to be the one who was institutionalized. Yeah, I think that's just really what they wanted to say is like, you know, it's a story of the guy who was the sane guy who went insane and the insane guy who went sane, yeah. I guess. I guess we really don't know what happens to Bob. He seems like, as you had mentioned, that there are all these steps and different therapies have kind of made him figure things out for himself by taking this advice and being subjected to these radical therapies. But is he really cured? Is he really different? Because I don't think the movie really resolves that fully. You know what I mean? Yeah, When he gets out of the ropes with the death therapy, we don't know if he's just kind of telling himself that and he's really cured or if he actually has improved. We're given to believe at least that he's at a point where he can deal with the various issues that he has. He's functional, social, can have relationships. And but then why would he go back to Leo's house? To, I know he wanted to congratulate him because he's, he's, so, he's so happy, right? He's so happy that he wants to... He's so grateful. Like, where else? And plus, in the middle of the fucking woods, dude. Like, where else is he going to go? Yeah. Of course, he's going to go back to Leo's house to be like, you've cured me. Hey, you know, he's and he's not really cured. He's just... At a point where chronic illness at that point, that's treatable. So he's okay, but he needs to deal with things on an ongoing basis. But I think he was so happy at that point. That's why he goes back. And plus, again, like I say, where else is he going to go? Yeah, I guess. I mean, like I would have figured if he really is cured, then like this is where I kind of fight that thought uh, and have conflicts on what you were thinking. I think your idea is a more brilliant story where we see the evolution of Bob challenging himself and becoming a better man and realizing his phobias and tackling those issues. Instead, I just find it's just a goofball comedy parody here where it's just, we just only see Leo de-evolve mm-hmm. and go into that state. And Bob is just kind of the same old wacky guy throughout the whole movie. There's signs that what you're saying is correct, but I just don't see it at the end with Bob for some strange reason. He just looks like he's just same old Bob. They didn't do anything here. They just focused on Leo. So yeah. And then now he's marrying his sister and they bring poor old Leo who's still in that state in a wheelchair in his hospital gown. He got to come to the wedding and he does stand up and scream no when the minister says just to stop the wedding before their man and wife and then the movie ends there literally i guess they just have the epilogue trope and writing about what happens to each character 
which I know you love. Oh, I love that. It's my fucking favorite. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's terrible. I'm tired oh. of it, too. It didn't bother me in the 80s or 90s, but it's just done so much since then. It's just, I can't stand it anymore. Even watching these old ones again, is, I hate it. It's silly and pointless. Like, if you had made your movie well enough, you wouldn't have needed to tell me, you know, right out on the screen what happens afterwards. So you know? do you buy, then, that Bob goes to school, becomes a psychiatrist, and is so successful, then writes a book called Death Therapy, is a hit, and then now, obviously, Leo's suing him the right for the rights. That's what he says. And, but do you buy that's the logical step for Bob, mm, and that's a no. believable choice? No, it's not believable at all. And I mean, obviously, it's not believable. So, and again, it, I, they're trying to get a laugh out of it. I mean, yeah, it's, it's following what the movie has done, right? Is like, there is the role reversal there. Like, the role reversals, are that's a reasonable strategy to elicit comedy, you know, to get me some laughs is to switch places like that. So that's okay, but... I mean, that's just kind of stupid. Like, why did... Well, I mean, it wasn't funny, so you didn't need it. It doesn't help tie the movie up. It doesn't help anything with the plot or any character insights or anything like that. It's just, hey, we showed you the whole role reversal thing here, but just in case you didn't get it, I'm going to hammer this poster on the wall here and make you look at it. So just to be sure you get it, okay? Ha ha, it's funny, right? Yeah. So I was like, oh, fuck, fuck you, Frank Oz. <laughs> fuck you, Yoda. You asshole, Yoda. You backwards speak. <laughs> that's what fuck. about Bob. We obviously at this point know kind of the direction you're leaning to here, but what can you find that's worthwhile in this movie? What have you enjoyed? What parts? What characters? What has worked for you? I guess I always enjoy a chance to see Bill Murray and Richard Dreyfuss. You know, they're always watchable guys, even when the movies that they're in aren't very good. Again, I thought that one concept that I mentioned where, you know, take a vacation from yourself, which was sort of the real piece of advice that put Bob over or put him on the path to healing. I thought that was a really interesting concept. Yeah, that's about to look like a really nice house. (laughs) (laughs) Until they blew it up. Yeah, until they blew that motherfucker up. And (laughs) for some reason, immigrants were happy about it. I don't know. Like, Oh, yeah, yeah. We forgot. I forgot to touch base on those guys. Yeah, they were around through the whole movie. Just like they bought that house. Like, bought that house. Like, wow, what an asshole. He bought a house that was for sale. Jesus Christ. How dare that rich white motherfucker buy a house that's for sale? God damn. He must have slaves in the back. He's he must have run over their child or something yeah. in the prequel. That what about whole, Leo? That whole, right? Yeah, what about Leo? That whole thing, Attack of the Leo, Attack of the Immigrants, maybe, I don't know. What was the point of that whole Nothing. thing? Nothing. That's a trope. It's just like, you know, having... As you said, this whole movie is here staging Bob to be the relatable character. Everyone is cheering for Bob. Nobody is cheering for Leo. At this point, I'm assuming that studio execs, the writers, potentially Frank Oz here, the whole point of this movie is everyone is roused at the end that the rich white egotistical psychiatrist got his comeuppance Mm -hmm. and the lowly guy who's got problems middle class guy who's kind of wacky and relatable and goofy just like most of society has won the day he got the girl in the end too screwed his sister fuck you and he's now rich so this is the dream of most Americans who feel like they don't fit into society and now they're catching a break just by happenstance. Mm. Whereas the, the man, the white man, the power, the 1% get their asses kicked to the curb. That's exactly what happened. And uh, I mean, don't get me wrong. I don't have a problem seeing, you know, the 1% get a little comeuppance. That's totally fine. But he also didn't 
he didn't learn anything, though. Like, he just got institutionalized. So that's a pretty shitty piece of comeuppance, isn't it? I mean... It is. And then now he's out of it, and he's still suing him. Yeah. So what did the 1% really learn? He didn't learn anything. Yeah. And not only that, they didn't even say he lost the lawsuit. He just said he's in the process of suing him. (laughs) Right. Yeah. No, this is strictly a movie about making fun of mental illness. And, like, here's the thing. Like, I try to, you know, watch a movie in the context of its time. It's from 1991. You know, put today's sensibilities on a movie that's 20, 30, 40, 50 years old or whatever in in most respects. But I do find it distasteful to make fun of mental illness. Like, you don't make fun of AIDS or cancer or, you know, any number of other chronic illnesses. It's not okay to make fun of it just because it's a mental illness. And like the 90s, okay, you want to tell, you know, go back to the 50s or something like that. You want to make fun of mental illness, you know, make fun of the guy with the goofy neuroses and stuff. Okay, I guess, you know, I don't know. I'm just picking the 50s out of a hat. But the 90s, I would hope that we would have been a little bit more evolved than to play this because there's some interesting ideas going on here but to play this kind of thing for comedy i think is a little distasteful i'm gonna partially disagree with you i'm not saying it's okay to make fun of mental illness but on a general level even though this is dealing with a guy who has mental illness i really don't think that's the focus of this movie it's really just about driving one guy crazy whether bob had mental illness or not i think that was just the MacGuffin that he had like a part of the MacGuffin where he had mental illness and that's the reason why he's constantly hounding him they could have made this movie very well in a different context in the sense that it's a neighbor. It's like Homer when Homer loved Flanders and he just wouldn't let him go. Right? Well, but, but sure, but but they didn't though. It's very specifically but, but about they, the situation they, they really of mental don't focus illness. focus on the mental illness except for the beginning of the movie. Well, yeah, but every piece of that is played for comedy though, right? I don't know. I really don't see that here. I mean, that's like just my take. His mental illness is always played for the laughs. It's never like, oh man, the that's laughs rough. are coming yeah. at Leo's expense, not Bill Murray's expense. Later on, but it is Leo who either develops or always had, you know, mental illness, uh, mental health issues, and that's the source of the humor. If you take all of that stuff out. I mean, if it's just like the neighbor driving Leo nuts, just in an anger sense, then yeah, sure, that's fine. But this is pretty specific setup. That gets the psychiatrist and his patient, and the mental illness is kind of at the core of the story. It's not at the forefront. And they don't, it's not at the, well, but that's because they don't care. It's a thing that isn't to be, it's so minor. It's like, well, mental illness is just in a guy's head anyway, so it doesn't matter. So we can make fun of it because it's not an actual, it's not a real thing. Like, you couldn't put a guy with AIDS at the center of the story and be like, well, the AIDS is just the pretext for him to drive his doctor crazy right you're like well that's that's kind of it's a little insensitive you know what i mean like that you could there's no way way you could do it that i hear what you're saying but the same you know it's not fun to poke at anyone who has illnesses irregardless of what kind of illness it is physical mental doesn't matter i'm 100 on board with that i'm just saying there are times and it's not just this movie in general especially in in our modern times now your point is kind of nitpicking an aspect of this movie that really I don't find that there was any messages here pro, con, positive, negative whichever way you want to look at it topic is not mental illness the topic is I'm dealing with this motherfucker who just won't leave me alone. That's the movie, yeah. Right. I mean, that, sure. and, and like, because like they just use the setup that he is a guy with mental illness or has some phobias, and he just doesn't know how to deal with it, and he latches on to a psychiatrist who goes on vacation, and he won't leave him alone. And essentially, that's the essence of the movie. So I don't but- really see them making fun of mental illness here. But that's just my take. But they don't think they are either because they don't think, like the, the view of this movie is that mental illness isn't actually real. It's just a goofy guy who's got some stuff and it's not even real. 
saying like it's too conscious like they pay it no heed it's a little insensitive if it was funny i could cut it some breaks so uh, it's okay to make fun of it as long as the humor strikes all the beats <laughs> it's at least better it's, maybe it's not okay but at least you know you're gonna pay the price you know give me some payoff <laughs> and laughter is the best medicine laughter is the best medicine <laughs> but i agree with you i think if you put this movie in the theaters today i think people would complain the points that you're saying right now there's no message in this movie. No, there's no message. There's no message here. Other than maybe don't tie your mental patient to a bomb in a forest might be the message. But I would have got there myself without watching the movie. Yeah. So kids, don't chain your mental patients to bombs in the forest, kids. Just don't do it. And don't do drugs. Agreed. So, yeah. Jeff. Actually, one last question. I forgot okay. to ask this at the beginning and I wanted to. Is this the first time you saw this movie? Yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah. interesting. Because I had seen this movie when I was younger and I loved it. Loved okay. it. Yeah, so just, I just wanted to provide a little reference there before we give our final thoughts. Now let's get to our final thoughts. Jeff, final thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> Do you recommend it? Is it a rare antiquity? What worked for you? What really didn't work for you? Wow, what a tour de force. What about Pop? No, spoilers. I didn't like this movie at all. I thought it sucked. I didn't like it. I did not think that it was very funny. I thought it was off-putting in its depiction of mental illness, as I've said, and in its insensitivity of, in thinking that it's okay to play that kind of stuff for humor, because it isn't. And yeah, you know, visually, nothing special going on here. I don't know how many times I laughed, but it wasn't very often. And I expect a little more. So do I recommend it? No, I, I think, ladies and gentlemen, you can go ahead and skip this one here. It's a rare antiquity. No, I don't think so. It's a pretty generic comedy for me and a not very funny one at that. That's my take. Harry, what about you? Yes, I agree wholeheartedly with you. Not a recommend, not a rare antiquity. As I just previously mentioned, I'd watched this and loved it when I was much younger. And I hadn't seen it in probably 15 years, I would say. So 12, 15 mm. years, I would, that's my kind of thumb suck. And yeah, I'm surprised at how little I enjoyed myself and how little I laughed. There were a couple of laughs in this movie as I talked about. I think the highlight for me is seeing Richard Dreyfus in the third act is finally let loose because I like seeing Richard Dreyfus let loose. I think he has some good comedic chops and timing. A little disappointed in Bill Murray. I expected a bit more from him in this one. He didn't do a bad job at all. He was very adequate in the role. Bob does have a couple of funny moments but not a lot. And I mean, I could see plenty of other characters in this role and have the same result, like actors. Mm -hmm. So I don't really see anything there, what Bill Murray brought to the table here. I guess just the star power, the name at the time, he was pretty big. And the automatic audience, comedic audience that brings along to a movie that has his name in it. Yeah, the directing, it's pretty straightforward. It's not that it's amateurish. It's just there's nothing special. It's pretty paid by numbers. Talked about the score. Pretty shitty. Sorry, whoever did it. You belong in TV land. Those Christmas <laughs> movies are for you. Go suck a lemon. <laughs> <laughs> Go suck a lemon, yes. you 1980s elementary school insult, you motherfucker. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and yeah, just disappointed in general. I disagree with your take, Jeff. I don't think that they're intentionally making any topic or point on mental illness in a negative or positive way here. It's just a dumb, juvenile movie. I think young kids will probably like this movie even today. 
but I think contemporary teens and adults, they're not going to want to watch this. They'll probably have the same reaction as we are having right now. So no to What About Bob. That does it for today's show. Jeff, what do we have in store? What do you have in store for us now? Yeah, you know what? I actually had trouble choosing my next pick and had one, but it's another comedy from the same time period. So I figured we'll diverge from that. So we're going to go back 20 years. And in today's political and social climate, I thought it might be fun to revisit the 1997 social commentary Starship Troopers. Oh, here we go. Yeah. Here we go. Yeah. yeah. I haven't seen that one in a while too, but I remember that one. That should be a fun ride. Yeah, that should be a fun ride. So yeah, look forward to that one. Well, thank you, Jeff. That's a good pick. I can't wait to, hopefully it won't take us two months to reconvene. So make room for us. And... Uh, <laughs> And as for Frank Oz, I think you need to go back into the Dagobah cave. You've inhaled too much swamp gas. <laughs> <laughs> he shouldn't have taken that lightsaber win with him. Yeah, that, he yeah. would need his weapons. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Anyways, Jeff, thank you very much for today and see you next time. All right, man. We'll see you next time.